Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, you guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. What the fuck is up, everybody? I am your host, Christopher Sinclair, and I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Drew. I'm a big nerd garrison. Today, we've got a very, very special guest, and I can't wait to introduce her, but I'm going to let uh, Drew do that. Hey, uh, Drew, are you enjoying this music? Yeah, so I feel like it's going a little long. I feel like you're going a little long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, our, our guest... <laughs> Our guest was was feeling it, which is nice because now we have video, and I love that. Like every single time that that we now like have these have guests pretty consistently, it's always like, "Do I need to get dolled up? Is anybody ever going to see this?" And I was just like, and "I was like, no, 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 we're we're fine. This is just for us. I don't know if it gets recorded." And then I was like, "I actually don't really know if we recorded or not because there might be just some like stockpile of footage that Chris has compiled on his computer over the past few weeks of all of our friends." And all of their glory at you know nine o'clock. Like tonight is a Tuesday night, so we're a day late recording. But um, but we do have, we do have some fun stuff that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some new investment opportunities for some things that we actually care about, which is which is fun for me because I'm getting into that world. And then we're also going to talk about the biggest story in the world, which is a certain canal being blocked. Um, and of course, we're going to have our dope follows and things that we're drinking. But we can't do any of those things without first introducing our guest who, is, as Chris pointed out, just one of the best people both of us absolutely adore and is technically a repeat guest. Yeah, our but, first, but our very first repeat guest. She fell victim to inexperience and lack of understanding of how to work things. So I don't think her episode actually ever aired, which is a shame because it was so great and it was a lot of fun. She battles in the courtroom by day. She slings wine at night. It is the owner of LBV Imports, Kelly Babineau. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. you. Also, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> you also brought your cat, Simon. So he might be making an appearance and or crying at some point. So if you guys hear a cat in the background, it'll be the one time it's not me. Um, but uh Kelly, thank you again so much. So for for our listeners at home, why don't you tell us a little bit about LBV and then also what are you drinking? So LBV Imports is my little tiny French wine import company. Although I also do have one Italian family that I represent. And potentially this year, uh, I am going to Portugal. No fingers crossed. And I may be bringing in some Portuguese wine. Breaking um, news. Breaking news on Good Bottle Podcast. Breaking news. Um, so heard it here uh, first, folks. That's right. Um, so the whole idea behind my business is really just promoting sm- the small family winery. Um, and I have a love of French wine, which is what sort of started the whole thing. And I import wines that aren't imported by anybody else. So they're too small to be interesting to the big import companies. And it gives me a great opportunity to give those families a shot at a new market. And it 
also gives us an opportunity to drink some really great French wine, or I guess I should say European wine, uh, that you wouldn't otherwise get to try unless you were over there. So that's kind of what my, my company is. That's awesome. Yeah, you've been instrumental in destroying my beliefs that French wine was was unapproachable and overly expensive and stuff like that and can still be goddamn delicious. Um, <laughs> I am only part of one wine club now and it's yours. Um, Yay! <laughs> so we need to talk about the shipping, by the way. We'll talk about oh, that yeah. after. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, what are you drinking tonight? So tonight I made, uh, I made for dinner, I made a lentil dish. Uh, and so I cracked open the Riesling from Alsace that I carry from Spitz and Fee. Um, and it's so good. It is everybody that says, oh, I don't like Riesling because it's too sweet, has never had a proper Riesling. Riesling from Alsace is not sweet. It is bone dry and delicious and full bodied. And this one is just, it smells of white flowers and it has this long saline finish and it's got acid. So it pairs really well with food. And it's got this little petrol nose. It's just everything. I love that wine so much. I can't get enough of it. So good. God, such a homer for her own stuff. Unbelievable. <laughs> no, I, um, like, like that, I totally, I totally agree with that that assessment as well. I mean, again, this is, um, you know, as most of our listeners or consistent listeners know, this has been the year of discovery for for myself when it comes to. To, to, to a lot of a lot of European wines, but then also um, really champagnes, and then uh, yeah, Riesling was was the other one. I was absolutely in that category of of um, uh, I don't know what I'm talking about, so I'm just going to say these things out. And I actually started to get a little bit more into them because you are actually one of my guests on Drew's Happy Hour, which doesn't that seem like seven years ago that that happened? Yes. Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> but that was that was a really fun conversation, and it was it was it was fun to get into that to the your background and stuff like that. And and again, just for people to know at home, it's like you know you you have the full time job, and then you're doing this import business on top. And I know you were just talking about the struggles of trying to find time to to do the import thing. I mean, like, what's the um, I mean, how do you kind of counter that? Like, what are some of the things that you're trying to do right now to be like, oh, yeah, I still also do this super dope thing that people want to talk about? So, yeah, you know, my life is just kind of out of balance right now. And I just it's just one of those things that I just have to put some effort into putting more balance into it. But I a part of the reason I started the wine business was that I so I'm a criminal defense attorney, which it can be an emotionally exhausting job, especially if you do it well. Right. Like you carry people's you're helping people in their worst moment in their life. So you carry that like emotional strain. I'm proud to do it. Don't get me wrong. I'm happy to do it. And, and I, I'm happy to help the people that I've helped, but it really wears you down. And so I was coming up on like my 20th year anniversary of being a criminal defense attorney. And we were in Bordeaux visiting some friends uh, when we had stopped by this small family winery and I was talking to the winemaker and she was just lovely. And she was saying, oh, I always wanted to, you know, break into the American market. And of course, I really wanted to not be a lawyer anymore. <laughs> I was in my brain. I was like, you know, I think I could solve this problem for you. I think I could solve this problem for you and I could solve my problem for me. Um, and so that was actually five years ago, you guys, this year. That was five years ago this year. Um, anyways, uh, I'm still a lawyer. 
<laughs> but my plan is, my plan is, uh, hopefully not forever. The wine business is doing great. Like I'm really lucky. I have really high quality product and, and, you know, and, and the thing is, is like, uh, now that I've been around a little while, people trust my, like, cause before when I was, you know, people didn't know me, they didn't know my palate. Like I'd say, oh, this wine is great. And they're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Get out of here, crazy lady. But, um. You know, now that I've been around a while, people like the know the company and they know the quality of the product and, you know, we're starting to get a following, which is really exciting. And we're down in the Bay Area. And so, I, you know, I think that there is someday I will be out of the law business. It's just not going to be as fast as I'd hoped. I don't think it's ever as fast as, as any of us want. Right. And you definitely do have some devout followers. I know, um, you know, occasional hosts former good bottle alumni chloe henry is also a huge cheerleader of you and she's she's the best um so i told you hey chris uh what are you drinking well funny you should ask uh on uh because i wasn't expecting you to ask at all um well uh because uh i realized tonight that uh kelly was coming on well i realized yesterday but um and I had a different drink yesterday that I, I was going to consume. And I was like, I don't – today I wasn't feeling it. I was like, I, I want this. This is what I want. Uh, I I decided to uh, uh, chill while I was at work because I like I knew that I was going to do this. So I like I found the bottle that I wanted, threw it in the fridge, uh, and have been anticipating consuming the bottle this evening. Um, it was the, uh, the Archambault uh, Rosé from Bordeaux is – fucking delicious uh i love this rosé it is um uh like what i love about it is like it's got not only is it like slightly floral um luscious it's also got like this off bitter quality um which i find pretty frequently about about old world rosés that i i just i adore i love that like that touch of bitterness um sort of uh on the back end slight mid palate it makes them so much more approachable and so much more refreshing uh here in california especially like foothills um like amador-ish lodi uh the rosés that are coming out of there have none of that and they're just these like floral bombs they're just they're juicy i mean and and don't get me wrong there's a time and place for all of that but you put a gun to my head and you ask me what I want. It's it's this fucking wine right here. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, that's 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, which is really unusual for a rosé. And it's a beautiful color. Just going to get to that. Uh, uh, like, I get a lot of Pinot rosés uh, pretty often. Um, a lot of Zin rosés pretty and Grenache rosés pretty often. Um, but 100% Cab uh, rosé, I like i don't get it just never shows up at my door and then i heard also like from from bordeaux like that's almost unheard of like it's just it's just so rare um which just makes this wine that much more special yeah and in fact it was kind of a one-off for that family they don't normally make uh they don't normally make rosé they make incredible red and white wines that are imported to new york uh they've got a big importer that that uh the family uses for new york um but that importer wasn't interested in a rosé, and Idiot. I I really wanted a rosé, a Bordeaux rosé, because it is so unusual, and I just find them, I, I find them so food friendly, and you know, bigger on the palate. That like they're not, like they're just more interesting. They're more textually interesting on the tongue. 
like, and it's still strawberry, it's still rosé, but it's just, uh, it's just a whole different experience. Yup. <laughs> Drew, it. what are you drinking? Drew, what are you drinking? Um, well, so I knew that you dorks were going to go with wine. So I was like, well, I can't go wine as well. And, um, I wanted to tie in my new hat to what I was doing. So my new hat, which is actually part of my dope as well, says make tequila mezcal again. And, um, I love it, even though it's like a horrible hat. Like, it's just like the material is ridiculous on it. It's like a total like old man fishing hat. But I, I support I support the message. And I do think it's important to point out that it's gray because I think anytime that you want to spoof the Make American Greater thing, you can't do the red and white and be a white guy because it's just no one is going to do the due diligence and actually read the message. So I appreciate that the fact that they went with the gray. Um, so with that being said, I went with some Gusto Historico uh, Mezcal. And this is one of our brand new ones to the lineup. And this is from uh, Victor Ramos, who I think a lot of a lot of people are going to be familiar with with his work with uh, with Mabien, who which is a really really fantastic bottler of of mezcal. And this is another project that he's working on. And I think this is um, this is really a sign of of kind of where the mezcal industry is headed, or at least I hope where it's headed, where you have producers who are just making good juice for whoever they want and they're being able to be the you know entrepreneurs and being able to make as much money as they possibly can so if they have batches that are ready and they have a brand that they can get behind and this is a a, a product from marco ochoa as well who is one of the former former partners of mescaloferro which is another kind of independent bottler of mezcals and stuff like that. But this was his, this is his first go like on his own. He came out with four different ones and this, um, this being one of them. And I just think it's great. I mean, it's just, there's some of the most interesting mezcals that I've had in in such a long time. And they also did a Chuturio uh, as well, which is like a Sotol, but down in Oaxaca. So you can't call it Sotol. And um, I really love the artwork, which I'll make sure to put on there, but they have, it's got like the Tohona on it. And it's, it's hand, like this was done by an artist down in Oaxaca and they have different, um, for each label, they show different processes, different parts of the process of, of Mezcal production. And I just think it's a really cool project. And I was blown away by the, uh, by the first four and I can't wait to see what they do moving forward. So, um, I, I just love the fact that we can, I can be at this point in my career where I've had a lot of Mezcal, a lot. and. I still get surprised by really amazing offerings, even from people that I'm familiar with their work. Like I said, I mean, uh, Victor's, you know, kind of infamous when it comes to Malbien and is very, very popular. And it's still like, I was just like, holy shit. I don't think I've even never, I don't even think the Malbiens are this good, you know? So, so that's what, that's what I'm sipping on. So I thought that'd be a good counter. Cause I knew you guys were going to go the wine route, you know? So a couple wines, you don't, you don't know me. <laughs> Oh, my friend. Unfortunately, I do know you. It and is, it I is, also It is know... unfortunate for you. <laughs> well, I think it's time for us to give our opinions on facts that we heard from reputable sources. Okay, so our first story that we're covering tonight is actually um, an investment opportunity that I think a lot of us and our interest in our listeners will be interested in actually investing in. So Death & Co 
the infamous bar that has locations in New York, Denver, and Los Angeles, is launching a new investment opportunity as well as entering the RTT market. RTD market. Um, so starting with Gin and Luck Hospitality Group, their goal is to raise between four to six million dollars, which will be used to start new locations, training programs, and consulting uh, services, as well as expanding consumer products like their books and online resources, as well as a um, Midnight Autour Hotel Group, which is going to be a themed bars based on whatever city that they're in for pop-ups. And they're also launching an RTD for um, non-alcoholic and alcoholic drinks. You can go to their website and you can sign up to be added to their email list for when it actually goes live to invest. So Kelly, I know that you don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Are you ready to invest in death and co? So I'm going to be an outlier here, guys. I'm really sorry. Uh, but I actually, okay. So death and co is madly successful. Those fuckers have so much money, right? Seriously, everything they touch is like gold. Why do they need our money, right? Like I felt like reading that article, I was like, this just feels like some ploy to get like a startup. Like they're trying to be like, oh, we're a startup. You're not a startup. You're not even close to a startup anymore, dude. Like you have got how many different successful bars, right? And places. So I actually kind of was, I was kind of a little put off by it. I don't think I'd invest in it. I felt like it was a cheap money grab. That is like such a great take. I love that. Chris, do you have a counter argument? You know, I do. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, oh man, I'm like, I'm formulating my thoughts now. Uh, you're I, getting lawyered right now. That's what happened. It just, you're happened. getting lawyered big time. <laughs> um, uh, so, so not only have I met Alex Day, Dave Kaplan, Plenty of times. Uh, Dave Kaplan actually um, uh, offered me a lot of really great advice when when we were um, getting ready to to open uh, the bottle shop. He helped me write my business plan. He gave me a lot of um, resources uh, from his own life and, you know, their own companies, everything they've that they've opened. Uh, he sent me just a bunch of examples of stuff that they've put together so I could use it to help put together our, our business plan and our prospectus. Um, it's fair to say that he's one of the guys that's behind Death and Co., right? Yes, Dave. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, yeah Dave Cap. Dave Kaplan. Um, uh, in reading, you know, doing a little bit of research uh, on this, um, uh, I was interested by probably one one important fact, um, which was their their justification for, for wanting, wanting money, um, for increasing, you know, the sustainability of, of their brand of gin lock and, and death and co was to be able to have that, like that cushion of cash to, to, um, offer their employees across the board. Um, the stuff that, that restaurant industry folks, professionals don't get, which is, health insurance over time, uh, uh, PTO, uh, you know, sort of all the things that are out that are normal in contracts and, you know, working in corporate world, uh, but not in the restaurant industry. So I, I found that that was really interesting that that, that was something that they were really looking to do. Now I, you know, that might be just good PR. 
Um, it might be something that they're that they're just saying, and and they're you know they're looking for a huge cash investment to launch their RTDs and you know all the marketing and everything like that. Which, I mean, if there's a company that should be doing RTDs at least theoretically the right way, you and you have a chance to take Death and Co. cocktails home. I mean, wouldn't you do it? I mean, I haven't had an RTD can that I've really been that crazy about over the past couple of years. Uh, I know there's there's obviously exceptions to it, but like I think I've been burned too many times that I don't do it. I think I think to to Kelly's point, it's like it is kind of a it like looking at it now, you're like, okay, well, their goal is to raise four to six million. Like that's obviously a lot of money. I'm not saying that's not a lot of money, but it doesn't seem like enough money to open up a new location or things that have proven to be the real cash cows for them, which I think as an investor, that's what you're looking to do, you know? Um, and I don't... Wait, you don't think that 4 to $6 million is enough to open up a new restaurant or bar? Well, I, I think in How addition to all How much do you think these, it takes to open a bar? No, no, in addition, in addition to the rest of these things as well. Like, it just, oh, it, okay. seems like it, it, it seems like that number's low. You know, it's kind of like a, like if they would have been like, we're trying to raise 10 to $15 million, I think I'd have been like, okay, yeah, like, yeah, that makes sense. Or maybe they're just being realistic with themselves. Like they could probably only conceivably, um, you know, raise that much. But, and, and we, there's not a whole lot of information in terms of reading that's out there available right now. But, you know, does that go into covering the RTDs? Like, is that part of the investment or is that part of it? Because it, it seemed like there was a couple moving parts within the article where I was kind of like, okay, well, what am I really investing in? Like, am I investing in bartender education or am I investing in in this? Am I investing in that? I mean, I think, again, like the, the thing that makes it appealing is that at least it's our industry. So it's like, okay, I have at least an understanding of what they're trying to do. But Kelly, what, what do you think? No, no, I was just going to say, so and the other question that kind of came back around for me is like, because I agree, Chris, the whole idea of like, of course, I want um, their staff to get health insurance and, you know, all the things that we we want in a good society, right? Of course. But how is this like one-time cash influx going to support that long-term? It's not. That's just a total bullshit answer, right? Because if you're really wanting to do that, then you need to have a, a plan that is sustainable. We're going to charge X amount per drink because that's how much profit we're going to get. And that part of that profit's going to go back into our employees to pay for their health insurance and their, you know, retirement funds and whatever. It's not going to be this one time, you know, influx of cash. That's just total garbage. It's they want the money because they want to, this is my humble opinion. They want to do the RTD program, right? Or whatever, right? And they want it, but they want it to be um, like a marketable idea. They want people to be invested and want to do it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I agree with you, Drew. I, I don't find RTDs all that interesting or exciting, but they are hot right now. And Death and Company's got a hot name. And, you know, that probably is alone going to get them like a foot in the market where people are. And if it's a good quality product, then people will talk about it and, you know, it'll get spread around. But I just don't know. I didn't I didn't like it. I didn't like the feel of the article. It kind of bugged me. So, so their their estimate for their for their IPO, their uh, initial public offering is is estimated around ninety dollars a share, which seemed to me like that seems pretty pretty high to me. Also, um, now I don't know what goes into estimating an IPO. They could just pull it out of their ass and be like, "This is what we need, and this is how we're going to get there." Um, and maybe that's maybe that's exactly how that works. I have no clue. I don't either. 
to be totally honest. It did seem high to me. I mean, it's normally, normally, I mean, I only do a small amount of investing. I'm not going to pretend like I'm some crazy great investor, but, um, you know, normally when they hit the market, the price is like down here. And then by the end of the day, the price has been driven up because there's been such an interest. If it's starting at 90, you know what I'm saying? Like they're just, they're just hoping to get a lot more. As, as a reference point, because this is, this is a world that I'm starting to dabble in a little bit and I'm, and I'm not putting a tremendous amount of time and effort into it just yet. Cause I have some other financial goals I'm trying to hit, but I was looking at it today. And I, what, what we're going through is a little bit of a market correction from what I'm being told by people who are much smarter than me, right? So that means that some of these prices are coming down, the, the market's leveling off a little bit because that's just kind of what happens within the market. So I'm not the type of person that wants to be investing in like GameStop and stupid shit like that, or it's going to be overly ambitious with like, you know, the new up and coming company. Like I'm going to go after blue chippers. And so I'm interested in things like Disney. Okay. I bring this up because Disney was at $186 today. So what you're telling me is that Death & Co, three bars, a couple cocktail books, and a and a potential RTD is going to be worth $90. It just it's just kind of like ah <laughs> Chris, I think you might be right, man. Like that sounds it sounds uh it sounds high. It sounds high for what for what this is, you know. Yeah. Well, especially if you think if you're trying to appeal to like bartenders, like don't you think it's like no, let's let's bring that down a little bit, like because that's really who's going to be who's going to kind of have that initial interest, right? You know what's what's really interesting is actually this was brought to me by someone who's not a bartender. This this was um, someone who's involved in other um, investment groups and came across her desk and she immediately picked up the phone and called me and was like, "What do you know about this?" Oh, like, tell, cool. tell me everything you know about this company. And so we did. We we sat down and we chatted for like an hour. Um, and she brought up a really great question, which I have my opinions on, but I'll, I'll hold them because I want to ask you guys. Do you do you foresee that maybe this opens the door as a possibility for restaurant groups to start doing this? I mean, I, I can't off the top of my head name another publicly traded uh restaurant group maybe maybe the one that owns like macaroni grill and uh you know like may, maybe they're publicly traded mcdonald's sure okay but i don't really consider them a restaurant because i'm a i'm an elitist um you know so let's to- think about this right sorry chris so like like tom clickio owns like a whole like a whole slew of restaurants it, i mean that's got to be under some company name is that publicly traded i don't know that's a fascinating thought Right. Um, that's interesting. And by launching, by launching a publicly traded company, you know, does that, does that, I mean, a a restaurant economics are already really haywire. They're super chaotic. They're all over the place. They're really difficult. Uh, your margins are super thin. Uh, does it a bolster, bolster that and offer you a little bit of security or does it add an extra like X factor that gives you even even extra insecurity, you know, because now you're playing with the whims of a market that could decide to bankrupt you tomorrow. Right. And right. And now you have somebody else that you have to answer to, right? Because when you're publicly traded, you have to answer to your stockholders. So you have to make decisions that aren't in the best interest of what like your, your mission is of your restaurant or whatever. It's, 
And what is the best interest of bringing money home to your stockholders? That's the whole idea. That's what, that's what their job is. That's why, you know, some companies are so deplorable. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think it was probably a lot more of an attractive option last January, you know, where maybe there was still that feeling of Teflon for this industry where it was like, we succeed when times are good. We succeed when times are bad. And then all of that was completely upset over the past year. And I, and don't get me wrong. I still think that there's a group of people who really romanticize the restaurant world and want to get involved with it and want to do different things. Um, more so they just want to be, they want to say like they own a restaurant, you know, they want to be able to walk in somewhere and be like, Oh, drinks are on me or really on the, on the staff, you know, or whatever. But I think it, I think it would, it's, it's an interesting concept, but I don't, I don't necessarily see the, the appeal unless you're doing something like an RTD, like there's some sort of outreach where it's like, okay, now we can duplicate this in somebody's home, you know? Um, Cause that was another thing that, that we kind of learned is that, I mean, I think probably all of us ate more takeout over the past year than we ever have before. And so, and I think a lot of people did a good job of it and it was, and it was still, you know, good and things like that, but it wasn't great. It wasn't the same experience. I mean, I think a lot of decisions I personally made was just like, I just want to make sure that I do the little bit that I can to potentially keep their doors open when the time comes, you know, but you know, if it was, if it was a place like uh, a place that we ate at a lot over the, over the shutdown was like Carpe Vino which is up in Auburn, north of Sacramento. And uh, that's a that's a fine dining restaurant. And we got some amazing food from them. But was it the same experience of going down and getting having service and stuff like that? No, abs- absolutely not. So I think if you if you are going to do it, I mean I, I guess in terms of the death and co like this like having that arm of the RTDs which makes it an extension to where it does go into people's homes like i think that's the difference maker i mean and i guess you might be able to look into like maybe some of the coolest factors cuz as you guys were talking about so you know Kelly you brought up Tom Colicchio like i'm a big David Chang fan so like i'd be like okay so you're telling me that i can invest in Momofuku it's like okay that's a guy that i would definitely want to throw my money behind but but what does that look like? You know, like what is, you know, what is the, are there real dividends there? I mean, we know plenty of people in this industry who own restaurants who don't make any money, you know, who don't pay themselves out for the first few years or sometimes ever, or, you know, kind of whatever. Chris, what do you think? Oh no, I was raising my hand cause I haven't paid myself <laughs> out either. So I'm like, yeah, I do know some of that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I think that I think the idea of a public offering is is really interesting. I mean, but again, if you're going to do it, like you have to have some sort of at home product that you know can, I guess, just conveys the quality and stuff like that. And then even then, it's, I mean, what's what's the bandwidth on something like that? Because it's, you know, you you see it happen with craft breweries all the time. The bigger that these guys get the harder it is to maintain that quality. And when you're talking about a market that's already full of trash, you know, like there's just so many bad RTDs out there. Like what's that scalability look like to the point where, you know, are you producing in multiple facilities 
you know, in order to satisfy potential demand. I mean, you know, right now they're spread across the entire United States, right? You got a spot in LA, spot in Denver, spot in New York. I mean, are they producing at the restaurants themselves? And then going out from there, like what, like what are all those things that, that look like? And I think as a, as an investor, as a potential investor and as, as a potential investor, who's going to be paying half for death and co, or I could save up half and buy Disney. Like, you know, these are the, these are the, these are the answers that you need to have if you're death and co, which at the very minimum, they're starting the conversation, right? They're starting the conversation. They're obviously gaining interest from investment groups. So that's cool. That means there's, there's obviously some potential here. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, but again, it's like invest in what you know, but at the same time, it's like, but is that really what, what I know? Like I know bars and restaurants, but do I know RTDs? Yeah. You know, I mean, on that, on that note of RTDs, like, uh, as someone who's been brought a veritable load of them this year, uh, and I have consumed a disturbing amount of them as well. Uh, they are getting insanely good. There's, there's a lot of really, really good RTDs out there now um, that they're super quality. And I, I feel like that there was a law that changed pretty recently where uh, uh, any RTD used to have to be a malt beverage and now they can actually package them with with real booze. Um, and so I think that was a big difference. And that on top of that paired with the the um, – sort of canonization of of craft cocktails and people are used to real lime juice and what that tastes like and not like the synthetic bullshit uh i i I think that now there's just a both a desire and an ability to to produce something uh of quality that comes in a can um i i that being said i i'd be surprised if they were producing these at any one of their bars i my guess is they they would come up with uh, a great recipe, you know, source all the all the ingredients that they need and then send it to a co-packer or develop their own, you know, their own uh, warehouse for doing it. Uh, maybe that's part of what that that, you know, four to six million dollars is for. Yeah, yeah, that could that could definitely be it. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this stuff moving forward. I know. I'm excited. I, I would assume that more and more diesels are just going to come out as they get closer to actually, you know, making the making it live. <laughs> okay, now on to everybody's favorite meme generator right now, the Suez Canal, which I learned today is in Egypt, not. <laughs> close to anybody else it was funny i was talking with my boss and he was talking about all these problems that we're having getting some stuff in i was like he's all does it have anything to do with that Suez canal deal and he's like no i don't think that any of our mezcal coming up from mexico has any problems with the canal in egypt and i was like maybe it was the bottles you know (laughs) so um so for those of you who don't know uh, the Suez Canal is a canal that's in Egypt that connects the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean, and it is responsible for 12% of the world trade. And this past week, due to high winds and a dust storm, which I think is hilarious, a cargo ship somehow jackknifed itself to the point where it couldn't move and it had completely halted um, basically the world's economy. Like we thought COVID was bad. Evergreen was worse. 
Um, Kelly, you brought this up as something that you wanted to talk about. And I can see the anger sharks swimming in your, on your face. No, no, no. Listen. So, okay. First of all, I just got to say, how long has the Suez Canal been around? What? I mean, like in the sixties, right. Is when it was like, right. Okay. So all that time, and we just had a sandstorm that caused a ship to, I mean, it's totally crazy. Something else was happening there. Don't tell me it was some stupid sandstorm. Although the canal is like this big, you know what I mean? Like it's this wide, it's like two football fields. It's super narrow. Yeah. Um, So my wine comes from France down and through the Suez Canal and up along uh, past Mexico past um, and lands in Oakland. And that's how it gets to me the vast majority of the time. And I am just really super fortunate because I have a shipment right now that is supposed to be landing in uh, Oakland next week. Thank God, because otherwise it would be two months from now because the backup is so bad. It's so bad. Shipping is my biggest nightmare. Shipping is my biggest nightmare. Um, Anyways. It's so so fascinating that, that your wine is coming from, coming from France through the Mediterranean, through the Suez, down through the Red Sea, all the way around the tip of South Africa, down down near, you know, Titanic waters, uh, and then heading back up around the Cape, all the way up into Oakland, which, mind you, also has been extremely backed up as well. I, I thought this was really fascinating because it was like, it was less than a week that this ship was, was beached. Uh, grounded, yeah. uh, whatever. But the estimates for how much uh, time it's going to take to like correct is in like months. Like we're talking like two, three months for correcting this like six day, five day error. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So yeah, the reason why. So it's so I have two options when I ship. I can ship uh, from France to New York, and that's about nine days, seven to nine days on a ship, but then it takes like three weeks on a truck, right? To come from New York because it's going to get off the ship. It's going to go to a consolidation warehouse and it's going to get on a truck. And then it's going to be trucked across the U.S., you know, across the U.S. to come to California. And for whatever reason, it takes like three weeks, which is totally insane to me. And the wine is so angry by the time it gets here because it's been on a truck doing this, right? Like it's so, it takes, I can't sell it right away. Like I, I can't, so I'll get, like, I just, I brought in, I brought in a bomb Beaujolais, right? Last year. And, um, normally it's about a month before I sell it because it needs to like rest that Beaujolais. It's been in my warehouse. We are in, we're coming up on April. It's been in my warehouse five months and it's just now starting to like show itself for what it really is. It's super crazy. Cause it was so angry <laughs> is, is that like bottle shock or is that what they refer to or is it something else that causes no, the I, wine to get so angry as you put it no no i think it's bottle shock like i think there it's just like you know it's like it, it's because i pay extra for it to be refrigerated so it's not temperature issues mm-hmm. um and it's not sunlight because it's in a in a it's in a refrigerated truck or a refrigerated container even when it's on the boat it's in a, i pay for it to be in a refrigerated container. Um, it's just the, it's the motion, right? Uh, and it's actually less aggravating to the wine to spend three weeks on a ship, which it's got to be because of the stabilizers, right? Is the only thing that makes any sense to me. And then it gets to Oakland, it goes to the consolidation warehouse and it takes about five days like to get from the warehouse on a truck to go an hour and a half to my warehouse. 
should just buy a damn truck and go down there and get it myself. But you know, um, anyways, it sounds uh, so, like a thing just, you would do. It is seriously. Listen, you don't know the conversations I've had with the, the trucking guys. If I thought they would let me into the warehouse, I would go. <laughs> so, so I, I looked this up because I'm like, again, I'm just learning today of where this place is at. And then now giving you you gave us the route for what your wine does. So down through the Suez Canal, around the tip of Africa, does it go through the Panama Canal or does it go underneath? Wait, wait. It doesn't go around the tip. So the Suez Canal is the Panama Canal. Isn't, aren't they the same thing? No. No, they're not? No. My husband's telling me they're not. Okay. So <laughs> it doesn't go through. It, it, the Suez Canal avoids the tip of Africa. That's what they were talking about is that a bunch of these ships were getting redirected and they had to go down farther. It was going to cost more money because they had to go around the tip of Africa. The Suez Canal cuts that off, doesn't it? No, it go, it, the Suez Canal is, is what, uh, what connects the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. And now I have so, to look it up. Yeah, you have to look this up, Kelly, because I think you're going to be really angry when you find out what this actually looks like. No, because <laughs> listen, I follow my ships. Like I go through Hillebrand and Hillebrand has this thing that I can follow my ship as it goes, right? Like as it leaves France, goes down and around. I put a, I just put a I just put a link into our chat so you can look at what I'm looking at right now, and I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to make sense of this because it doesn't at all in my brain right now on like even like why it would go south as opposed to just going west from France. Because because the the thought process is that eventually hits the Panama Canal, right? I mean, are we in agreement on that? Or no, no, the no the the way uh, current global currents work is it takes it takes the 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 route down along the eastern eastern uh, edge of the African continent down around the the tip. So it's a it's a shorter period, you know, because like the tip of a ball, uh, which makes it really easy to track to go from one part of the globe to the other part instead of going directly across the Medi- the the um the meridian uh and so that way it goes from one tip to the next to the tip of south america and then up along the western coast of uh south america central america to the to the continental us so it does so it goes, it goes the around. the panama canal I mean, you would have to then go down down the western edge of the of the African continent, up the the sorry down the eastern edge, up the western edge, across the Atlantic through the Panama Canal, and then up. Uh, that would be longer. Yeah, I agree, Chris. I got it. Okay, everybody, everyone listening at home, just Google worldwide shipping routes because i'm looking at maps now and it's just (laughs) which is really funny because obviously this has been a really big story over the past week and i just haven't cared about it until kelly was like we need to talk about this and i'm like all right i guess i'll move past all the memes that i've read that i think are hilarious and actually focus focus on this thing and now i'm now i have this brand new appreciation for shipping routes because none of this makes sense to me i'm like i don't I understand where the issues potentially are, but it's like thinking of where this starts in France and comes down through the Suez Canal 
like you said, Chris, around the eastern side of Africa, all the way down to, you know, around the tip of South Africa. And then it just goes across and it goes around the tip of South America, up its west coast side, and then all the way up to Oakland. Right? So what I will say about this whole catastrophe uh, this last week is that it was really nice to have a catastrophe that wasn't terribly nuanced. Uh, it like it felt really good to my brain to not have to think of like all the pros and cons and uh, play devil's advocate in my brain as to why this might be okay or bad or you know what cultural significance this might have. I'm like, no, big wind push boat into shore. That's bad. <laughs> it caused problems. We get it. Uh, it was really nice exactly. after a year of like political fucking catastrophe and fucking global condemnation of whoever uh to just like be like wind bad ship in on ground bad no boats move continue no boats move (laughs) and you know what's funny is all the talk has been about like how it's going to affect the global economy right because there's so much shit on those boats right there's and it's all backed up and now it's going to take forever for it to get to where it's going and like you said, like the ports are backed up anyways. They're they got less people working. You've got COVID outbreaks. You've got you know strikes that are happening. Oakland's super backed up. Um, I mean, you have you have. I mean, not just consumer goods based on like you know like your technology and like refrigerators and fucking I don't know like whatever the equivalent of like Eastern European Amish chairs are, um, but uh, you know you have you have like apples and pomegranates and shit that like are going to go bad. And therefore that will probably cause a lot of problems. La- I, last I checked, there were like, uh, uh, as of like two days ago, 421 boats backed up, uh, in the way <laughs> I, I got a, a big kick out of it. The, the name, uh, and I just learned this with, uh, uh, doing my own little geography research here is uh, the the man-made lake or maybe it's not man-made but in between uh in the middle of the suez canal is like the bitter the bitter lake something like that and i i got a nice little nice little chuckle out of that i'm like oh it's a it's a lake that the water doesn't taste good that's cute <laughs> uh, i'm gonna feel really bad when someone's like you know why it's called the bitter lake i'm like i don't know i don't know i'm sorry um <laughs> Uh, I know I got sidetracked. A uh, bitter lake. It was a you know, squirrel. What? Um. So I lost my train of thought. So so moving forward, then. <laughs> so we're talking all these talking all these trade routes and stuff like that. Kelly, you already had some wine on the way, so you're so you're kind of good. Um, what are and then you you talked about refrigerated trucks and, yeah. and storage and stuff like that, but. You've also told me in the past that even though you pay for it, you don't actually always get it when you're supposed to as well, right? Like that's something that's happened to you before, right? You don't even know. Oh, it's really the bane of my existence. (laughs) It's such a nightmare. So like, so, okay. So there's only uh, a couple of companies that will do wine refrigerated the way that it needs to be. Like I could pay less and just put it on a ship. Because I, uh, and part of that's because I do LTL, you know, I do limited, like I share storage containers, right? Because I, I'm, I, I'm such a small company, I'm, I seldom fill a whole container of wine, right? Um, anyways, and so, 
you know, they'll, they wait until the ship is full before they send it over. So like, I might be on like their schedule for like a ship that's supposed to leave, like say on April 1st, but then it doesn't leave till like April 20th. And then it's another like three weeks from there before it even gets to the stupid, you know, port that's supposed to unload my wine and then like send it up to me. It's, it's just, uh, it's the, it's part of the aggravating part of importing wine that nobody tells you about. Mostly people think, oh, how fun you get all this great wine to drink. But like, there's all these other little parts of it that make it really, uh, complicated. No, really. It just drives you nuts, nuts enough. So that way when the wine shows up, you barely have any to sell. Cause you're like, fuck, I just need some wine to drink. Cause this was awful. <laughs> Killing me. <laughs> so I'm back on like, I wish I could pull up my Hillebrand um, account so that I could show it to you. But because um, I know you're right, like it doesn't make any sense. But but you're you're uh, I think Chris is totally right the way that it goes. It's just the way the shipping routes go. And it just well, takes forever. You have to uh, keep in mind that we're I've getting about Kelly back on the show a lot because I she's told me that I'm right more than anybody ever has on this show. So <laughs> Well, and you also, I mean, you have to keep in mind that I'm not necessarily someone that you need to like really prove this to. I mean, I'm like nine minutes into this research. So, you know, there's still a lot of discovery left to be done for me. And I don't really have hard opinions on it yet. I'm just very much so looking at it from a, oh, I don't understand, you know, anything. So I'm not going to sit here and, and, and beat you up on it. But, um, but it is it is super interesting, and I know that like right now for ourselves, we have uh, we're in a situation where we have some stuff stuck in customs right now. That's some whiskey that we're really really excited about, and and I was talking to my boss. I was like, well, you know, you said it was going to be here a couple of weeks ago. They're like, it's like, well, yeah, no, it's it's in customs. So I mean, we could have it tomorrow, or we could have it in three weeks. We don't know. And I'm just like, oh my god, like what a this has got to be just infuriating for everybody. Cause I know I'm annoyed and I have, and I'm, and I'm the furthest from it almost, you know? So I just couldn't even yeah. imagine. You know, that's the nice thing about Hillebrand is they deal with the customs for me, but like when I'm bringing over samples, I do it myself. So I go through like FedEx or GLS and I've, I've lost, I've lost cases of champagne in FedEx, and you know, it's just somebody opens the, opens the container and like takes a couple of bottles. I've had I've had cases show up and they're missing bottles, and I call FedEx and they're like, "We don't know what to tell you about that, right?" Or or the cases just never show up at all, and they're like, "Oh, we got pulled. It got pulled for because um, they wanted to check to see what was in it, and did they decide to release it, <laughs> or did you just decide yeah. to drink it? Is that what happened? I mean, come on. Anyways, um, crazy." So, yeah. yeah. So the thing that nobody talks about those damn FedEx delivery people drinking your wine. Only in the customs section. It's only in customs. It always gets stuck in customs and then somehow it just doesn't get out of customs. So I don't know who it is that's like, oh look, shipment from France. <laughs> it's a problem. It's a problem with all spirits. <laughs> it's it's a problem with all spirits because we have we have the exact same thing happen. Like we get mezcal samples allegedly sent to us, whiskey samples allegedly sent to us. And it's just like, they don't even make it through customs. They're like, Nope, this stays here. And so, you know, it's such right. a bummer. Yeah. It makes you crazy. Makes you crazy. Anyways. That's enough on the Suez canal. Mm. You know, who's dope them over there. Okay. 
now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is our dope follows of the week. Basically, what we're going to do is we're going to tell you who you guys should be checking out, whether that's through their Instagram, books, podcast, whatever the hell it may be, YouTube channels, blogs, if those are still a thing. I don't know if they are. But we're going to give you some dope people. So, Kelly, why don't you start us off? Who's your dope follow this week? Okay. Um, so there's two. Can I do two? Absolutely, you can do two. This is, okay, a, so- this is a free place. It's a free country right here. <laughs> so there's two guys. Well, I mean, I have all sorts of crazy people I follow on Instagram. But there's two wine guys that I really enjoy. There's a guy called Frank Drinks, F-R-A-N-K. And he's this guy down in um, Southern California who started doing like just his review of wine in his minivan, right? Cause he was trying to get a break away from his kids. It's so freaking funny. And he's awesome. Like he, like he's, um, st- I think he's studying to get his, you know, his, uh, certifications and stuff, but he's just really approachable. And now he does it in the backyard and the kid just comes in and like, you know, yaps at him and stuff, but he's always spot on. He's got a great palate and I just really enjoy his honest reviews of wine, which is really fun. And then there's a guy in Australia that is actually a winemaker for um, a winery in Australia, but he never promotes uh, that because he feels like there's a conflict of interest. He just talks about like wine in general. And his name is, um, I'm going to spell it because I'm, I'm, I'm not confident that I can say his name right. It's T-I-G-E-S. So Tige, Tige's, Tige, the winemaker, T-I-G-E-S, the winemaker. I feel like there should be an R in there, but there's not. So, um, and he's the same thing. Like he's just got, he's really fun to watch and he does a really good job. Other than that, it's all like, I, I totally dig like Jacques Pepin. Have you guys been watching him through Instagram? I mean, uh, through COVID. Jacques Pepin? No. Yeah. yeah. No. So on Instagram, I, his like. Hmm. I grew up watching him on PBS, like on, on when I get home from school, I, I used to love watching his cooking show. He's so lovely. So, you know, during COVID, his, I don't know if it's his son-in-law or whoever's been staying at the house with him, but he's been so active on Instagram through COVID and he does all these like, oh, let's make, you know, whatever out of my pantry. And it always looks amazing. I'm totally, I'm totally in love with Jack Pepin. I want him to be my grandpa. Like, he's just so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chris, who's your dope follow this week? Uh, I'm going to keep it uh, close to home today. Uh, my boy, uh, Josh, uh, is uh, at, uh, on Instagram and pretty much everywhere else you can find him uh, at Sue Bean. That's S-I-O-U-X-B-E-A-N. Uh, he is an amazing ceramicist. Um, I love his work. I've eaten off of his work more times than I can count. Uh, he... Uh, he's made plates for, uh, the restaurant that Drew and I have talked about quite a bit, uh, crew, which is an amazing sushi restaurant here in Sacramento. Um, he has made plates for, uh, another restaurant that's, uh, you know, James Beard nominated here in Sacramento. That's, uh, Mulvaney's B&L. Uh, it's a building and loan. Um, he's, he's a badass. He's got a great, um, sense of, um, building and community and, uh, social justice, uh, all through the framework of art and ceramics and spreading, spreading multitudes of voices. It's red. And, um, uh, now his, uh, give you the warning, his social media is definitely personalized social media. It's not, uh, it's not focused, uh, but you do definitely get a lot of that, um, through it. I love Sue. Yeah. He's a homie. 
He's he's a good guy. Like the, when anytime that you refer to him as Josh, it throws me off because I've only known him. As yeah, Sue. I, I've and known so, I've known him too long, and uh, so he's just Joshy to me. But uh, yeah, uh, he's he's Sue to everybody else. So yeah, because he threw me off last. I was like, it's like, oh yeah, we're gonna be meeting with Josh, and then like he came in, and he was like, hey, Drew, and I was like, wait, what's happening right now? Like, <laughs> this is not what I thought was about to be a thing. But that's a good one. Good follow. Both of you guys, great follows so far. So far? So far. So you're yeah. going to fuck this up. Eh, maybe. So, I, so you know, going back to the reference of my make tequila mezcal again is actually from uh, a former Don't Follow, which is Beer Ghost, which I know Chris and I are huge fans of, Beer Ghost. Um, uh, Max is a bartender down in Southern California that always puts out these amazing memes and stuff like that. And he wore this hat. Uh, on one of his Instagram posts and it just kind of blew up because people loved the hat. So he partnered with Shaker and co, which does a lot of really cool um, industry related items and just, just different swag items and stuff like that. I've got a couple pins from them in the past and they sold this atrocious hat for, um, for the tequila, for the tequila interchange project, which is a project that's dedicated to, um, really sustainable practices. And more importantly, and I think this is, I do think this is actually very important is, you know, a, a lot of time, like when we talk about sustainability, we're, we're talking about, you know, tequila being bat friendly and replanting agave and stuff like that. But like these guys put like a really big emphasis on the emidors and actually getting these guys paid for the intense labor that they have to do harvesting these agave. So, so I really, really like that uh, part of it. So you can, you can go to mover and shaker co um, which is their Instagram, and you can buy this hat that says "Make Tequila Mezcal Again." And again, it's not red and white, so it's safe to wear, even as a white guy. Um, people won't misconstrue it for something else. But it's definitely like an old man, like dad fishing hat, which I'll be sure to share a picture of myself wearing it on Instagram for all of our listeners at home, because you can be like, it even has like the, uh, like the strap on the back with the gold clip. I mean, it is just. This hat would not exist in my very vast collection did it not have this very important message on the front. So that's where, so that's my don't follow the mover and shaker co and the tequila interchange project. Check both of those out. Cause they're really, really dope and they're fun and I love them. Awesome. All right, everybody, it's that time of the day again. This Good Bottle podcast is brought to you by Fluid Concepts. The music produced so eloquently is brought to you by the mothers, the mothers, the brothers Moore, both Chase and Leon Moore, two brothers. They are listen uh, every week. They listen, listen every, every week. week. They do. Leon uh, does, at least. He told yep. me about this last week. That's right. He goes, we uh, listen every week. They're Australian, uh, though you wouldn't know it. Uh, it's just mostly in, you know, how they approach life. It's like more of a philosophical thing, kind of like Buddhism. Uh, uh, this show is produced terribly by these two guys. Uh, and before we go and kill these bottles that we've been drinking, we ask that if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review.
Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Good Bottle Podcast, or on our personal accounts, which mine is D Garrison Six and Chris's is Chris Sinflair. Kelly, where can people follow you on social media? Instagram, it's LBV underscore wine. Twitter, it's at LBV Imports. And Facebook is LBV Imports. Uh, you can also support the bod- the podcast and our desire to buy more tequila, mezcal, hat, again, stuff by going to anchor.fm slash Podcast. If you would like for us to cover a story or if you're working with a brand that wants to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also purchase the bottles that we drank on tonight's episode at thegoodbottleshop.com. You are struggling. You can also also join Kelly's Wine Club. It's the wine club I'm a part of. Go and do it. It's great. You get dope stuff. It goes on a ship for three weeks just to get to you. We covered that tonight. So, um, but yeah, but I guess until next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Thank you, Kelly. You're the best. Um, it's still recording, so don't embarrass yourself. <laughs>